from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonida Inge. All eyes are on the election process as we approach Super Tuesday next week. At St. Joseph AME Church in Durham, Reverend Dr. Ben Chavis Jr. spoke at a Souls to the Polls. Events like this take place at houses of worship each election cycle to get congregants out to vote, no matter who they vote for. From the bustling cities to the quiet countryside, every vote's a beacon lighting the way with pride. Together we march side by side for our future, and we will not hide. Souls to the vote. Equality, justice, fairness, equity, all on the ballot. We've had very important elections in the past, but not as consequential as the 2024 presidential race. And the key to this outcome is going to be voter turnout. Are you normally an early voter? 100% early voter, because that way I don't have to wait for my precinct, and they keep moving the precincts, and you never know exactly where your voting spot is, and if you don't get the email or the, the snail mail. So I go early, because I know I can always vote at NCC Law School. I am an early voter. Like, um, one of the things that Reverend Chavis spoke to about it being sacred, that's something my community, uh, particularly my neighborhood, really pressed upon us as children that this is a sacred moment. So. Um, I'm very much an early voter. After Reverend Dr. Ben Chavis Jr., we heard the voices of Rodney Skurlock and Carla Gilchrist, who were also at the Souls to the Polls event, talking about why they vote early. Later in the hour, I'll speak with former North Carolina State Senator Floyd McKissick Jr. about North Carolina's early voting history, how it got started, and why he sees early voting as a civil rights issue. And when it comes to voting access, there's another big factor at play in the 2024 election cycle. For many North Carolina voters, this will be the first time they'll have to show their photo IDs to vote and we're going to get deep into that conversation with our guests. Durham County's Director of Elections, Derek Bowens, is with me. And to break down the history of this law is WUNC's voting and election integrity reporter, Rusty Jacobs. The current law says a photo ID is required. Now, what a photo ID is or what qualifies as an acceptable photo ID at the polls and for absentee voting, because that's important to know, people have to provide a copy of a valid photo ID with their absentee ballot if they're mailing it in or handing it in. There's a pretty expansive list. Not only does it include state driver's licenses, it can include if you're over the 60, over 65 and had a valid photo ID when you were 65 and it was unexpired and has since expired, that is valid for the purposes of voting. It includes passports. It includes some, uh, if they're approved by the State Board of Elections, public assistance IDs from either state or federal programs. It includes certain college and university student IDs. So the list is expansive. And I started with the list because that is an important point. There was an earlier law that dates back to 2013 that ultimately was rejected by the federal court, the 
Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And one of the big changes that came from that ruling was a more expansive list of photo IDs. Because I've been pretty impressed by what counts as a fo- uh, as a voter ID. As a matter of fact, during the election season, the municipal season in the fall, I stopped a young lady and she said, I didn't know I could vote with my ID from Kentucky, wherever she was from. And it was a valid ID. And she got to use that as her ID. I was like, well, well, I learned something every day here. If you have an out-of-state ID, but I think it's, a, and Derek can correct me on the, on the specifics, but if you've registered within the past right. 90 days, you can use that ID. I think it's really important to point that the driver's license or one ID is not the only way. And there are even exceptions for people who don't have valid IDs. We can get more into that. And really, the last important point I want to make, if you don't have a valid photo ID, get yourself to your local elections office because they are printing them and making them for free. Well, Derek, how busy are you (laughs) at the Durham County Board of Elections when it comes to IDs? Um, Well, actually, not not so busy. Um, We've issued um, over 100 cards, um, less less than 200 for... um, since we began to implement this again um, in in 2023 in preparation for execution for our municipal elections here in Durham. Uh, But it hasn't been uh, excessive. Uh, Most of the people that have come in and asked for those IDs have just wanted to have it uh, just in case. Um, So, but it it hasn't been as as busy as one uh, would think, given that these IDs are free. I'd like to know, you know, are these young people um, kind of if you can describe who's coming in and saying, you know what, I'm going to get this free ID. Yeah, it's uh, we're actually seeing um, they're, they're older um, individuals, actually. Six, six, <laughs> 65 uh, plus. Um, we've seen that the, the vast majority of them are also um, African-American um, and, and are women. So so we're not seeing a significant number of, uh, of younger individuals. We do see them, uh, but the lion's share would go to that particular demographic. Well, Rusty, I just want to know more about this law. You know, like, really, you, you you mentioned 2013. You know, when did all of this take effect, and who was behind this push for this ID? So in 2013, what really set the stage for a the first photo ID law that ended up being struck down by the courts in North Carolina was a U.S. Supreme Court decision in the Shelby case. Okay, this is an Alabama case, and ultimately what it ends up what it results in is what people call the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. It, the, the part of that federal law that required states like North Carolina with a history of discrimination at the polls uh, requires them to get any changes to those election laws pre-cleared by the Justice Department. They, the U.S. Supreme Court in that Shelby decision did away with that. And suddenly there's a flood of legislation from state legislatures, most, if not all of them, Republican-led, including North Carolina. And what came about in North Carolina was an omnibus elections bill that required photo ID all of a sudden, that seeked to curtail early voting, which is popular across the political political spectrum, but especially with black and working class voters. And ultimately, that law gets struck down. And as far as early voting, the evidence in that in the case against the North Carolina law showed that legislators had racial data. They saw very clearly from that data that the first week of early voting uh, was very popular with black voters. And lo and behold, the legislation and, does away. And with Democrats. It. That correct. 
and 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 it has to be noted that black voters overall, the statistics show, lean Democratic. So yes, and it's part and parcel those two, the partisan and racial issues. 2016, that law ends up getting discarded. Well, in 2018, important to note, 56% of North Carolina voters approved a referendum to establish a constitutional amendment requiring photo ID in general, just saying photo ID should be required by state constitution. After that approval, the Republican-led legislature went about drafting the legislation that we see now. And I'll just note very quickly that that legislation had been wrapped up in litigation and it took another state Supreme Court decision last year because the 2018 law, the one that we know now, had been struck down also as being potentially discriminatory against black voters. The law has now been cleared by the Republican majority state Supreme Court last year. It went into effect for the municipal elections last year, small sampling, fewer than 500,000 votes cast statewide. But we've had it for that one cycle, and now it's getting its bigger, wider test in a presidential cycle year. Let's just say I've been working in media for a very long time. I won't tell my age. And I was even confused. I stay confused, gentlemen. And I remember, I think, in 2018 or so, when I went to a a polling place because I took pictures. And I was like, well, hmm, that's pretty cool. And it said, you do not need your ID. You know, I guess they were just trying to let people know, even though this law was talked about a lot and it was going to be in place. But for that election cycle, people were like, No, you do not need your voter ID. Please come in and vote. And I was like, is that a good message or a mixed message? So I wonder, have you been worried, Derek Bowens, about, you know, the mixed messages? Um, Not so much. I think people have have started to acclimate to the adjustment. I mean, we've been, you know, kind of in an iteration of photo ID, no photo ID since uh, 2013 with House Bill 589, as, as, as Rusty mentioned. Um, but I think we're in a place where where most people um, we're seeing th- through the 13,000 people that have voted early in Durham County thus far. Um, we haven't had many issues with showing photo identification. There has been some confusion, but I think generally folks are are understanding. And Leonita, let me just say I, I, the voting rights advocates that I've spoken to who are still fighting, by the way, in the courts to have this law struck down, their, their big concern is that people will will disqualify themselves by not wanting to deal with the hurdles. And they're concerned about the dissuasive effect of even the loss, wondering what do we, do I even have the ID? It should be just noted. If, if you go to an early voting site and, and you don't have a valid ID, first, you may have an exception that applies, but if you don't, you can cast a provisional ballot and you have all the way until Uh, the day before the county canvas, nine days after election day, to get yourself that free ID from your elections board and then present it to the elections board and have your provisional ballot counted. So the biggest concern, certainly one of the big concerns among advocates is that people will be dissuaded from even trying. There are a lot of mechanisms in place to make sure this is not more than a requirement, that it is not a hurdle or an impediment to voting. We'll be right back on Due South. I'm with Derek Bowens. He's with me. He's Durham County's Director of Elections. And of course, Rusty Jacobs, WNC's Voting and Election Integrity Reporter. You know we gotta we'll vote, be right vote, back. Vote. 
Welcome back to Do South. I'm Leonida Inge. I'm speaking with Rusty Jacobs, voting and election integrity reporter at WUNC, and Derek Bowens, director of elections for Durham County. Well, Derek, tell me a little bit more about this, not just early voting, but voter ID, and actually how, I guess, your office is working to make sure there's just really no obstacles. And again, tell me, how many folks have come in for these free IDs? Yeah, so let me clarify. We actually have issued 276 um, cards thus far. We've got data visualizations on our website that track uh, those issuances. So we've had some good foot traffic, again, less than we would expect. Durham County is also doing an event once per month outside of regular business hours at the Board of Elections at our local libraries. So anyone can come to one of those events on a Saturday each month to receive a free photo identification. And also, um, I guess you're you're taking this show on the road sometimes. You just you mentioned the library, but even because um, you kind of know the population, the folks who really want an ID. Yes. Yes. And so we're, we're trying to really consider geographic dynamics, um, di- diversity dynamics um, in where we go with the machine. Um, we're also open to requests from entities that want to have us facilitate folks getting IDs that need them the most. Um, and based on what we're seeing in terms of who's requesting these IDs, um, that tends to tell a story of, of who needs them. And so we want to make sure that we're available to those populations. And we were talking about the law Not too long ago, but even though folks can definitely always come to your office nine to five, you know, to get these IDs during working hours, but they'll be able to get an ID on the last day of early voting this Saturday. Yes, our our office would be available to issue those. Um, The the law allows us to issue um, IDs anytime except for the period starting the close of early voting through Election Day. Um, So we would make that available to members of the public that would need that to execute um, their vote in an early voting location. Rusty, you've been making the rounds. You say in some counties they're even going to senior centers. Absolutely. And I want to echo what Derek had mentioned earlier that he's seeing uh, that directors and elections officials are seeing, especially among the elderly community, interest and curiosity and confusion even about these IDs. But in Lee County, Wayne County, two places I visited, they are, have been going to senior centers, bringing their machine to both take photographs and issue these IDs. I, I do want to note one thing. Again, this is an anecdote that Derek shared with me in a previous interview. Same thing I heard in Wayne County, that, that there are elderly people out there who have not one but many forms of valid photo ID, and but they're not sure. Uh, and, e- and even when they're told that and when I say they, an elderly person who's got a number of valid IDs, when they're told though any of those will suffice, they still want the board issued photo ID because it just makes them feel more comfortable and reassures them that they won't have any issues at the polls. It's a nice story, but it should be pointed out: these are valid forms of ID, but they're not the only valid forms of ID. You don't need the board issued ID if you have one of the other uh, qualified IDs. But I know that Derek. And, and all his fellow directors are happy to provide them if people want them. You know, I remember a lot of the talk early on in this fight and how an older Black woman was used as an example of some people, even in this state, far eastern North Carolina, they may not even have a birth certificate, you know, because of where they were born, how they were born at home, you know, their age. They did not have an ID. And, and going back our to the official law. papers. 
going back to the law, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on any specifics there, but there is a, a, an exception for ha- not having the requisite documents, the required or needed documents for getting a photo ID. There are really lots of provisions and mechanisms in this law to help somebody in that situation. Well, Derek, I want to ask you about some of those provisions. I also wanted to talk about, you know, when I first voted and had to show my ID, and I live in Durham County, and, you know, I guess it went kind of smooth. You know, I was asked for my ID. I was prepared for that. But what I wasn't prepared for was to recite what was on that ID. I was like, you have the ID. You see my picture on it. I think I look like that picture. But no, they were like, they wanted me to recite my address, and I was starting to feel like I was like in a doctor's office. How they want to make sure I have insurance? I was like, "Here we go." Here, I'm, but I'm that person now. I mean, Rusty, don't look at me like that. Rusty's <laughs> Who looking. Could not at recognize me. you. Oh, I just want to know. I just was not prepared to have to recite what was on the ID. I was like, "Wow, I gave it to you, and you see my name with that same address in your paperwork." So. That was just me getting prepared for this. So what what are your poll workers saying? Um, so our, our precinct officials, um, we, we've developed a, a what we call a photo ID evaluation guide in our county for our precinct officials to use to ensure, you know, statutory and administrative rule protocol with respect to the evaluations of IDs. Um, we, we've heard a lot of what you just said, as in you have my ID right in front of you. Why don't you just use that? Well, the problem with that is that the previous the statute that was in place well before photo ID still remains which requires each voter to state their current name and residence address. Um, Now, obviously, there are people who do not have the ability to state, uh, in in a verbal sense, um, their name and residence address, so there's provisions for that um, to accommodate that by prompting voters for certain information. Um, But it is still a requirement of law that you state your current name and residence address, in addition to presenting that acceptable ID save exceptions so that the precinct official can perform photo ID evaluation to determine that the photo on the ID is the person standing in front of them and that the name is the same or substantially equivalent to the name in the electronic or paper poll book. Hmm. Maybe if they gave me a piece of candy or something, you know, I could <laughs> swallow that whole process a little bit. It's a lot. But your your question, Lenita, really points to a big issue uh, about the introduction or the, the uh, kind of new quality or aspect of this voter ID requirement and what voters are going to be encountering. North Carolina's got a hundred counties and the people who are responsible for putting this law into effect are volunteer poll workers and they are being trained. And I know the state elections board is going to great lengths to make sure that it's a uniform process, but there are going to be variations. People are going to have slightly different experiences. And I'll note that the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, uh, one of the advocacy communities concerned about the impact of the photo ID law, noted changes by their field workers in the municipal elections, that people were challenged in certain ways, and they are concerned about a lack of uniformity in the application of the law and what people will encounter when they're told to either recite the information that Derek referred to or not. But the State Board of Elections is going for this to be applied in as uniform a way as possible. You know, Rusty, as you make the rounds, are you seeing any evidence, and I think we hit upon this a little bit, but are people staying at home rather than, we're talking about dealing, though, with any, and we know it's easy to get an ID now because of the law, um, and some people may have paperwork or IDs that work. They didn't even think 
would be valid, but are people staying at home? It, it, it's it's impossible to know if people are staying home unless there's a really scientific uh, survey done at some point. I, I think what what can be seen from the numbers in the municipal elections, again, a very small sampling, is that people may be showing up to a, a, a polling site, uh, not have a requisite ID, and deciding not to come back. They, in other words, they don't have one of the uh, valid exceptions, but they don't come back uh, before the county canvas, nine days after election day, to get that valid photo ID and present it to have their provisional ballot counted. I, I, I think it was a very small number, but there are some indications that that occurred in the municipal elections. You know, we had a question that came in from a listener of this program named Stephanie, and she said, I'm curious about how this will affect Spanish-speaking North Carolinians. And she says, I received a nice flyer from the NCSBE about photo ID, but there wasn't anything about Spanish in it at all. Yeah, I mean, I I will say that the state board, um, I'll give them kudos on, you know, their efforts to um, reach various populations. And, and there's obviously still work to be done. I do know in, in Durham County, uh, when we first uh, began implementation of this, I guess the second iteration of implementation after the 2013 law and the subsequent injunction, um, we actually held two uh, Spanish-speaking photo ID events in Durham in conjunction with the State Board of Elections. Um, that was very well received um, by, you know, our community. So I do know that the State Board of Elections is working with counties to conduct events as a part of um, the session law that implemented this to educate um, the community on the photo ID requirements. But I think those mailers are a first step, and I think the efforts will certainly continue to educate um, all communities on, on, this, um, on this law. Well, I'm here with Derek Bowens, Director of Elections for Durham County, and Rusty Jacobs, WUNC's voting and election integrity reporter. I know we started going down the list, for example, of um, all the different IDs that can be used. I I liked hearing how, say, if someone, maybe their home was in a fire, you know, maybe just some, some disaster happened in their life, they're still able to vote, just in case they don't know, and maybe that their IDs were destroyed, all their paperwork, but there is a provision for them. That's right. That is one of the valid exceptions. Derek, if you can give me the specifics on it, I know that the, the event or disaster has to have occurred within a certain amount of time prior to the election, mm -hmm. but yes, there is an exception for somebody in that situation. Yeah, so if an, if an individual is subject to a natural disaster um, that occurs within a certain time frame of the election, either being declared by the governor of this state or the president of the United States in the affected area, um, they would be allowed to use that as a particular provision as to why they could not present photo identification. Uh, but in addition to that, there's many additional reasons, even in other, um, where you get to write the reason that um, you believe you were not, you were prevented from showing acceptable ID at the polling place. Um, and that would be accepted uh, by the Board of Elections unless they unanimously determine that that form was submitted falsely. And of course, that would be based on evidence and facts. And, and Lenita, if I can point out, it's really an important aspect of the exceptions that we're talking about. These reviews, they would have to be unanimous. That is, the, the local elections board who ultimately reviews an exception form uh, that goes with a provisional ballot would have to unanimously reject it for reasons of falsity, that they just don't believe it's true. 
my, my guess is that is a very high hurdle to rejecting somebody or not counting somebody's ballot. Yes, uh, very difficult. And I think the law was intended to make it um, a, a very um, challenging process, I should say, um, to deny someone um, their right to vote or their ballot being properly accounted, assuming they meet all the other requirements um, due to the fact that a board member or board members may not agree with the reasonableness of someone's reason um, on the photo ID exception form if they choose other. But we also know that um, fraud is low <laughs> in elections, definitely for North Carolina, very small. And that was also one of the debates of why to add another hurdle to voting if fraud was really not an issue. You know, I've been saying it, there's kind of inconvenient truths for all sides here. The inconvenient truth for proponents of the voto ID law when they try to justify it saying we've got to deal with fraud is there is not a rampant fraud problem. And the kind of individual fraud this law would address is, is you know, so small that it's statistically insignificant. It's not changing the results or outcomes of elections. The inconvenient truth for people on the other side is 56% of voters in North Carolina in 2018 approved overall a general requirement for photo ID. North Carolina is joining a majority of states in the country that have some, some sort of voter ID requirement. So people clearly see it as a reasonable step or measure for preventing fraud or for in bolstering election integrity. But the question is, you know, is it worth a hurdle that could discount some votes or is it worth it to avert that small statistical number of if, if, if not fraudulent, wrongful votes. Mm. And I know fraud. You know why? Because I was a reporter in Wisconsin, and people would do anything for season tickets for the Green Bay Packers. Do you hear me? You could be dead for years, and they would hold that. So I, I remember working on stories on those. But back to Derek. So you've been here a while in Durham County. You've had, you have many years' experience even working in other counties um, and Board of Elections. So I just wonder, you know, how are you doing? And was it difficult to pivot, you know, to implement all the changes that you had to do this time around? Well, I would say, um, you know, election officials are some of the most re resilient, talented people. Um, and not saying that because I am one. I'm, I'm speaking, you know, trying to be as objective as I possibly can on from that uh, side of things. Um, we're used to constant change. Um, we're used to constant changes with the law or law um, that's caught up in litigation and injunctions. And so um, I don't believe that this um, has been complicated, at least from my perspective, with regards to implementation, because this is something we've been dealing with in some nature since 2013. It's just different iterations, uh, tweaking of certain rules, but it's vast majority of it has been consistent, save um, some of the things uh, Rusty mentioned with regard to the Fourth Circuit injunction back in 2016. So I, I, I would say that, you know, the State Board of Elections, um, counties have, have been resilient and we've really worked hard to, you know, make this process or this transition over time as easy as we we can for our voters. And and I think we've done a good job without as much stress as one would think, considering the the amount of changes. Yes. And I would like to thank that the county that I live in <laughs> was running running smoothly. But Rusty, wait a minute, you reported on a letter um, sent to the State Board of Elections by the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, Common Cause North Carolina, and Democracy North Carolina reporting, you know, the way the 2020 
2023 municipal elections were handled in some counties. Well, I, you know, again, I, I, and I just have the numbers from the state board of elections in my mind. It's something on the order of 480 or so, uh, I think maybe it's a provisional ballots cast for reasons of photo ID. And of those, the majority were counted. Uh, the number that was rejected had to do more with, again, people either not providing an exception form, but not going back to the local board of elections to get a valid photo ID within that time period they could. Or that ID exception forms were wrongfully rejected. Right. And that's and, and I use that phrase, quote, I know that's a quote right. from the thing. The, 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 the letter was based on observations from field workers working with these groups. I, I think to some extent they're anecdotal. That's not questioning the veracity of those observations. But the, I think what I got out of that letter more than anything was there was this lack of uni- uniformity. People came, people, individual voters came away not feeling they had enough information from a poll worker on how to follow up with some question about photo ID. That, that certainly seems plausible. Uh, you know, again, this is the first time it was being implemented. Uh, since the state Supreme Court decision the year prior. And so it, so there it could takes be some inconsistencies. Right. You know, and, and I, I, all I can say is that I know the, the state board of elections and then the county directors by extension are doing everything possible uh, to train their poll workers on how to apply the law in a, in a uniform, consistent way. And if I could add just one quick point, um, somewhat in, in, in the defense of our, our precinct officials, um, every provisional voter is given uh, by law a set of instructions when they leave the polling place with how to contact the Board of Elections, with what they need to do to cure um, their provisional ballots. Um, and, and I think, um, it's especially um, given some numbers that Rusty uh, suggested earlier and even some conversations that I've had with voters, even, even yesterday <laughs> at mm. a polling place that I had to visit, there is um, unfortunately a, a a, a myth that needs to continually be busted, which is provisional ballots don't count. Provisional ballots don't count. And so I think a lot of folks that, you know, vote provisionally, they don't have a photo ID, but they also don't fall under one of the the exceptions on the photo ID exception form. And they're told, hey, make sure you come back, you know, show us the ID. You can even get a free one and turn around and show that to us uh, to cure your provisional They'll say, well, I, they're not going to count provisional ballots or the election is already over in their mind because of margins. So there's a lot, as I think Rusty suggested, that kind of goes along that, that's congruent to many of the issues that might have been brought up in that report um, that that are voter related, not so much precinct official related. So, Derek, you know, tell me, where can people find information about voter ID requirements? Yeah, we'd encourage you, at least, you know, in Durham County or any county, um, our website is uh, decovotes, D-C-O-V-O-T-E-S uh, dot com. Uh, we have a dedicated voter ID page. We've created a statewide voter ID video that the State Board of Elections now uses on their website. Um, of course, you can go to ncsbe.gov. They have a dedicated voter ID page um, with a lot of great detail on how you can get an ID and how the process works. But um, certainly all 100 counties are, are readily available to help, and certainly the Durham County Board of Elections is. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for being here. You're welcome. Thank you. Derek Bowens is Director of Elections for Durham County and Rusty Jacobs, Voting and Election Integrity Reporter at WUNC. 
Up next, former state senator Floyd McKissick Jr. on why he sees early voting as being so important. And we also chat about his family's legacy in the civil rights movement. I'm Leonita Inge, and this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Leonita Inge, and this is Due South on WUNC. We continue our voting hour by turning from voter ID laws to early voting. And here to talk with me about early voting in North Carolina, its history and role in our democratic process, is Floyd McKissick, Jr. These days, he's on the North Carolina Utilities Commission, but many may know him as a former North Carolina state senator serving 13 years. McKissick served as the senior deputy Democratic leader in the Senate, and he was chairman of the North Carolina Legislative Black Caucus. He also served on the Durham City Council. And since long before that, he's been fighting for civil rights pretty much, I'll say since he was born. I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair to say. (laughs) Well, Floyd McKissick Jr., welcome to Do South. Thank you. It's my privilege to be here with you today. You know, your father, he was a pretty well-known civil rights leader, and you grew up, I guess, in a home where it was common for some very well-known figures to stay over when they came through Durham, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, all the major civil rights leaders from the 60s, whether you're talking about uh, James Farmer, who was with the Congress of Racial Equality, the group that my father was also affiliated with, or Roy Wilkins with the NAACP, or... You know, Malcolm X, you know, there were a lot of people who either stayed in our home or visited our home on many, many occasions. It was kind of the heartbeat and central point in Durham and really in all across the state of North Carolina for uh, being engaged in civil rights and protest. And, uh, you know, I was privileged to be a part of that and had a front row seat to history. Yes. and, And I would like to think that made you who you are today. Well, I think it certainly contributed in many, many respects. It inspired me a great deal. And I saw the transformative change that came from that type of advocacy in the civil rights movement. And, of course, my dad was among those who spoke at the March on Washington, uh, met with President Kennedy that way, and likewise engaged uh, personally in, in, in battles to tear down various discrimination here in North Carolina, here in Durham, whether it was public accommodations or whether it was even integrating the public school system, which my two older sisters uh, were pioneers in integrating here in in Durham. And of course, he was one of the pioneers that led to the desegregation of the public university system in our state uh, in a case called McKissick versus Carmichael. And Thurgood Marshall, who ultimately became the first African-American justice in U.S. Supreme Court, was his attorney. And that was way back in the late 50s, excuse me, early 50s, I should say, because that was decided in 51. Mm Mm-hmm. So now we're in a time of year I would like to think is maybe your favorite time of year, the voting season. I would think so, um, because that's when we um, formalize a lot of the change, you know, that your family has fought for over the years. And so early voting has been around for a small portion, I guess, of your life. When did you first start thinking about early voting as a very important issue? Well, early voting as we know it today, which is, you know, actually casting a vote during that early vote period has, you know, uh, 
It's been around for a decade or a half or so, you know, I mean, but and, and I think it's excellent because it gives people a chance to vote on something other than Election Day itself. Historically, when I was growing up in Chicago, you had to vote on that first Tuesday in November or whenever that primary might be held in May or whatever it might have been. And the lines were wrapped around the corner. Lines frequently were. And, uh, you know, of course, I can remember as a child even getting people registered to vote when I had a newspaper route over in North Central Durham uh, for the Durham Sun. You know, I probably got about 30, 35 people in a newspaper route to, to vote and saw them vote for the first time. So, I mean, you know, in terms of being involved in the political process, it goes back to my early youth. But I think in terms of early voting, we are lucky, we are privileged today to have a wonderful extended period of time where you can get out there and vote and not be constrained to voting only on Election Day. And uh, this year it opened up on February 15th. And it will run all the way through March 2nd. So, I mean, it's a pretty broad and expensive period. And uh, and you can vote as late as 7.30 in the evening on most days. Of course, that last Saturday, you're constrained to voting at 3 p.m. And you should always check with your county board of elections. So did you see right away at all early voting as a civil rights issue? Absolutely. I mean, I I think it's important to understand that many people are constrained. Uh, They are working. They're unable to get out there and vote for the candidate of their choice during the regular period of the day. One might have to get up and do it by 6 a.m. and do it before the close 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 at 7.30. So, yeah, increasing access for opportunities to go in in there and vote for the candidate of your choice was critical in expanding that Um, was important, as well as allowing people to register to vote during the early vote period. Because if you're not registered to vote in North Carolina, you can go in there and get registered to vote during the early vote period and cast your vote. Now, if you're not, have not registered to vote and do that one-stop voting by the last day of early voting, you cannot do it, you know, before election day. So who is early voting? You know, we think about you know, these flexible hours that are provided for mostly a lot of people who, you know, they may work early mornings or they may work very, very late at night, you know, um, or maybe they have to commute really far for work, for example, or to take care of their kids. So who's usually early voting? Uh, I think people early voting are ones that have in the forefront of their minds, the need to get out there and participate. There are people that may have rigid schedules that make it more difficult to vote, say, on Election Day. And in addition, you don't know what can come up that might prevent you from voting on Election Day. So, I mean, I think it offers and democratizes the opportunity for everyone to participate. And and I think early voting has been used frequently as a tool to get people out to vote. Uh, you know, people go out and canvass and get people out to vote. They call folks to get them out to vote early, and they can do it over a significant period of time that enables a greater number of people that otherwise might be constrained to to vote. And of course, the thing I remind people of this year for the first time in North Carolina, you will need a voter ID. So I really want to encourage people to bring with them a state-issued or government-issued voter ID. It can be your driver's license. It could be a tribal ID. Uh, all of our community college IDs qualify, as well as those of our public universities, as well as some private universities. So bring that ID with you to vote this year. And more importantly, if you do not have an ID, you can still vote provisionally 
uh, by going in there, letting people know that you forgot your ID that day. And if you come back before the canvassing of the vote ends, which is usually about five or seven days after the general election takes place, uh, you can produce an ID or even get an ID from the county board of elections the day after the election period to still have your vote qualified as being voted. Well, I'm here with former state senator and civil rights leader Floyd McKissick Jr., and we're talking voting. We're talking early voting. So some of the things that you've been talking about, I mean, it's got to, I guess, make you feel good that we're at this point in history that there's really almost nothing in the way for someone who wants to vote to vote. But I guess the ta- the task is really making people want to vote. You know, the numbers are still pretty low percentage-wise. Yeah. And I mean, you want to motivate people. You People have no right to complain later about whether they're county commissioners or the way they want it to be or your school board or your city council or your governor or whoever it may happen to be if you don't get out to vote. And it's important to do so. And remember, it's not just voting for president. It's not just voting for governor. There is voting for people in our state Supreme Court. It's voting for people who are going to head up our Department of uh, of Agriculture. It's a state treasurer. I mean, it's a whole slate of people that are running this particular election year. And there's every reason in the world to get out and do it. And remember, so many elections have been decided by a very small number of votes. For example, when Carrie Beasley lost her seat as Chief Justice in the North Carolina Supreme Court, it was less than 500 votes. I believe it was like 435 votes she lost by. You know, very small number in terms of the number of votes that were cast. When Obama won North Carolina in 2008, he won by roughly about 13,000, 14,000 votes. Okay. So, you know, these are very narrow victories. You know, when uh, Biden lost the state, as I recall, it was about 79,000 votes. So, I mean, you know, when Roy Cooper won when he was first elected in 2016, it was about 10,000 votes. So, I mean, I, I guess use those as illustrative examples of about the closeness of the races here in North Carolina. Places of our state are deeply blue. Other places of our state are deeply red. We're a purple state. We're a purple Your state. vote. <laughs> makes a difference. The key thing is go out there and vote for the candidate of your choice and make your vote count. So it makes me think, what were some of the challenges that you faced or that you encountered really just challenges to early voting? You know, especially during the time when you, when you were in the, the the state Senate. I mean, not everybody is pretty partisan when, it, when we talk about early voting. Yes. I mean, there were times when there was legislation to eliminate, uh, you know, last Saturday early voting in the early vote period. Uh, There were times when we were not able to vote as late as 730 in the evening. I know I was a a primary co-sponsor of legislation that uh, resulted in changing that. You know what I mean? So you can vote now to 730 in the evening. But, um, you know, and it Make certain of that last Saturday when people get out there to vote that we extended that time. Uh, actually, not only did we restore it when it had been eliminated, but it used to stop at one o'clock. Now it will go to three o'clock. So, you know, there are challenges that are faced. Uh, and some of that legislation, we also came up with a, a request form for absentee ballots. And I encourage people, if for some reason they cannot get to the polls and vote, either early voting or in the general election, request an absentee ballot. And there's a specific form that you can request to do so and get that ballot in. 
based upon recent changes in North Carolina law, that ballot, if it's an absentee ballot, needs to be postmarked and delivered to the county board of elections by election day, which this coming up now is March 5th. Now, you can actually take it into the board of elections. You don't have to mail it. But if you're mailing it, I'd say mail it five days early to make sure it gets there. So we're post-pandemic, and I just wonder if you, um, what have you noticed about the role that early voting plays now? You know, that because I remember even during the pandemic, you know, people coming out with their masks on, you know, but still the numbers, people having and really hopefully appreciating that access that I know you fought for, especially on Saturdays, bringing back Saturday early voting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the key thing is yeah, I, I see people motivated. I see people inspired. I think that sometimes uh, voters are not as aware of all the people that are running in down-ballot races, uh, say, uh, for county commissioner or for the school board or, or for state Supreme Court. They're not as visible. So I think that sometimes they think, well— if, for example, this particular primary, if it's obvious that perhaps the nominees are going to be um, President Biden when it comes to uh, the Democrats or, or former President Trump when it comes to the Republicans, that they don't need to worry about voting until November. Well, that's just not true. They need to get out here now and vote because it makes a difference who is who people are deciding to go into the primary and, excuse me, go into the general election for so many races. And, and that's true for many of the legislative races in our state, which in uh, our state has been, you know, gerrymandered in a way that uh, unfortunately um, presents challenges for many candidates. So I think it, it's more of a reason and more of a reason to, to, to get out there and vote now and vote early and if you don't get there in the early vote period, get there for the general election. Uh, there's no reason not to do so. Uh, the outcome and future of our communities and our state are at risk if you don't cast your vote. Do you remember 2016? What did you see in terms of voter access? I remember some problems, you know, especially like at North Carolina Central University. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the key thing is that if for some reason there's problems with equipment on election day or people are not that, – that make it impossible for people to actually vote or power is out at precincts, it's possible for that county board of elections to extend voting at that particular precinct because of technical difficulties or challenges. Uh, one thing from 2016, I mean, there was – actually a couple of natural disasters that had occurred before then in terms of hurricanes that impacted the area. So, you know, um, people were not, it's, it wasn't as easy for people to get back to their precincts in the counties where they lived to vote because they'd been physically displaced. So that was a challenge. Fortunately, this year, we haven't experienced those natural disasters. Uh, hopefully, on Election Day, we won't experience equipment problems or malfunctions or challenges. But if they are experienced, people at the precinct double should be expedient in contacting the County Board of Elections to so they can remedy those problems uh, as expeditiously as possible. Well, I know you're not a last-minute man. I know you have early voted. I have. I, I voted on the first day of early on voting. The fir- do you always vote on the first day of early voting? Frequently, I will if, if I'm able to do so. And if not, I f- almost always vote during the early vote period. I can only think in the last uh, couple of decades of voting on Election Day probably three times maybe. 
Mm-hmm. Well, you, you you fought for early voting, so of oh, course yeah. you. Absolutely. Do you I mean, make it a big deal? Like, does your family come out? Well, and- my oldest son and I went to uh, Floyd, went and uh, both of us went to vote, uh, you know, uh, on the first day early voting opened this year. And, uh, you know, but frequently my youngest son will come along too, you know. I think he had classes this year, so it's a challenge for him. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to inspire Everybody, our neighbors, our friends, uh, those who we go to church with, uh, those who are members of our fraternities, sororities, whatever our connections may be, get people into voting early and making certain that for if they missed early voting, please get them on election day. The outcome of our future is at risk and at state every election cycle. There's never one that anybody should ever miss. How did you feel slapping down that voter ID? Well, I mean, you know, I, I it, was, it was a different experience. I went into a little card case I carry where I have a couple of credit cards and my driver's license is buried at the very back. And, and while I psychologically knew I needed to present my voter ID, when I, I intuitively went in there and mistakenly pulled out a credit card at first. Which oh, I'll was, take it. <laughs> I'll take it, yeah. Which is pretty humorous. Uh, but I immediately recognized you got to go further back to pull out that, that driver's license, which I very, very seldom pull out, you know. So I, I did have it with me, and I was ready, and I was prepared. And I guess each and every one of you, be prepared. Bring that voter ID with you. If you forget it, vote provisionally and go back after Election Day. And if you don't have a voter ID, get to the County Board of Elections office and get one or fill out one of these, you know, uh, reasonable Im- impairment declaration forms that excuses the fact that you don't have one. But uh, I'd say if you can get one, do that first. Well, thank you very much, former State Senator Floyd McKissick, Jr., civil rights activist and longtime Durham, North Carolina resident. Thank you for being on Do South. It's been my privilege. Thank you so very much. Have a great day. I'm Leonita Inge. You've been listening to Do South on WUNC.